I'm talking to Dr. Eggington. He is the uh, Decker Professor in the Humanities and Director of the Alexander Grass Humanities Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Dr. Eggington has just published a book titled The Rigor of Angels, Borges, Heisenberg, Kant, and the Ultimate Nature of Reality, uh, which I read. And um, Dr. Eggington, I'm so grateful that you've lent your time with me and uh, have agreed to talk to me this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I've read uh, a lot of books for these interviews and I've spoken to so many, so many wonderful, amazing authors. But this book is like really right up my alley. You know, this is like, this is like my kind of book. Um, after high school, uh, I was very inspired by Godel Escherbach mm -hmm. by Douglas Hofstadter. Um, and it probably is the book that inspired me to become a computer programmer. Wow. Um, and I feel like this book, in a similar way, weaves together from so many different disciplines, um, explores like the deepest questions in an accessible way. And I'm sure your book will inspire so many people like that book inspired me. It's an extremely kind comparison. Um, Hofstetter's book is also extremely important to me. Um, and not only because of the way that it's written and what it was about, um, but also this idea of, of taking three completely different figures, seemingly different figures from intellectual history and using that as the basis to weave together a story. Now, clearly, the style of the books and what we do in them are, are very, very different. But that idea is there's no doubt that I was inspired by Hofstetter's book when I uh, when I was looking for the form to convey this uh, this story. In. But but there's something very unique about you and, and maybe Hofstetter as well. But this this sort of cross disciplinary approach, right? You're someone who's written a lot of books and you've dedicated, it seems, a lot of your work and energies to exploring the intersection, the nexus, the overlap between so many different uh, disparate fields. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, no, it's um, sometimes I, I have to offer the excuse that I have something along the lines of intellectual ADHD. Uh, I work for a while on a topic and that leads me to something else. And I, I don't pay much attention to disciplinary boundaries when I start uh, digging into something. And uh, so that's true what you say. I have, um, in fact, I ultimately chose the discipline in which I got my PhD many, many years ago now, precisely because it was a discipline that allowed me that kind of range. Um, it's what we call comparative literature uh, in the United States, which is not just a matter of reading literature or literary history, certainly not of comparing authors, um, which may have been its original uh just, you know, an adequate description originally. It's a field in which you can mix intellectual history, uh, literary studies, cultural studies in general, philosophy, in particular certain kinds of philosophy, what we tend to call in, in, in the United States continental philosophy, uh, which, which originates for the most part in, uh, in Europe, but is spread around the world. Uh, so it's, um, it's a kind of field that uh, allows for, that, that invites, that encourages the sort of exploratory thinking that, um, that, that excites me the most. And so, as you said, I've, uh, over my career, I've written about um, the rise of, uh, of the theater institutions in early modern Europe and how uh, they impacted the development of political and, uh, and, and political thought and philosophy in general. I've uh, written about um, the history of psychoanalysis and its relationship both to interpretive practices in general and to, um, and to ethical philosophy. I've written about uh, religious history, about the relationship between what I called moderate religions and fundamentalisms. Um, and of course, certain authors have called my attention. So I've spent a lot of my uh, my time teaching and writing about great authors like, like Cervantes in, uh, in Spain, uh, Borges in, in Latin America, but always involving these or relating these back to what I consider to be sort of the, the big philosophical questions. Yeah, and I, I think uh, your Cervantes book is next on my list, so um, I'm excited for that. Um, I, I, I hope I interpreted this correctly. On your website, does it say that you're working on a project or a book about Alejandro Jodorowsky? Is that yeah? So it's it's pronounced Hodorowsky, um, or sometimes he's known as Hodo, uh, uh, for short. Uh, the great Chilean um, surrealist filmmaker. Yeah. Um, 
uh, guru. Uh, and and yes, I, I the only correction I would make is that I'm not working on the book. It's actually done. So oh, I'm, wow. I'm I'm waiting for it to come out at this point. But it's uh, it's due out early to 2024. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. Okay. And that and that book is again one of those explorations for me that goes off in a different direction it, it sort of joins the family of books that I've written on on psychoanalysis so it's uh it's since Khodorovsky is not only a filmmaker but someone who deals in psychotherapy or a certain kind of psychotherapy through um uh through bodily interventions I sort of relate uh Khodorovsky's filmmaking and his practice his therapeutic practice in that book to psychoanalysis that sounds wonderful okay the title of the book comes from a Borja short story uh, one of my favorite, Tlon Ukbar Orbis Tertius. Um, what makes Borges special? Uh, why why is he the third strand of of your book here? What what you've also obviously you've written about him specifically. Yeah. Um, what's your uh, yeah? What makes him such a unique and important author? For me, Borges is the most important writer of the 20th century, and that's saying a lot. Um, I don't think I'm alone in thinking that. Uh, as as you know, he never won a Nobel Prize for Literature, and many of the people influenced by his work say that's kind of one of the most remarkable um, uh, glitches in um, in Nobel Prize history. Uh, Borges, um, I cannot think of a single writer uh, whose fiction pushes the extremes of metaphysical speculation like Borges's does. So for me, in particular, what is so special about Borges's writing is that he his stories, his narratives, I love his poetry as well, and I, I refer to his poetry in, in some por portions of this book as well, but specifically his short fictions have a tendency to grab, to, to, to grab onto one of our, by our, I would say, I mean, widely held human beliefs or investitures, um, metaphysical prejudices is one of the terms that I use in the book to uh, to describe these kind of beliefs, beliefs that we share without often being aware of how deeply held they are. Um, Borges will explore those, but he'll explore them through storytelling, and he'll explore them and push them to their limits until the to the point where they suddenly start to vanish or crumble before our eyes. And it's it's deeply unsettling at a uh, uh, an existential level. It it forces one to take stock of what's true and what's not true. And I think it reinforces the critical critical ability of those who spend a lot of time reading Borges and thinking about the world as a result of reading Borges. It reinforces a kind of um, ability, um, a talent that I would call something that I've called in other books, reality literacy. Uh, the, um, the ability to read carefully the world around you and do so in a way that, um, that unearths these kind of um, uh, presuppositions that we have that aren't often well thought through. Mm -hmm. does, does Borges, uh, does his work, does his oeuvre, his literature speak to a particular metaphysical perspective, a certain angle on some of these deepest questions about ultimate reality? Does he have a, an opinion on that in his, uh, in his in his work? He does, and that's what I try to unearth. So a lot of uh, a lot of Borges scholarship has um, has assumed that he's kind of a trickster um, who doesn't really have a coherent vision. And this is one of the, the in my own teaching on Borges, one of the tendencies that I tend to um, to deflect or turn away from. I find that there's a great deal of consistency in Borges. And so let's let's turn to the story that you you mentioned is one of your favorites, certainly one of mine. I have my students read it over and over again. I've taught it so many times, and yet I continue to see something new in it every time. That's Tlön Ukbar Orbis Tertius, the story. Uh, and again, it's story is hard with Borges, because is it a story, really? Is it? Uh, I mean, it is, but it, it it's, it's an unusual story, as so many of his are, that begins kind of as a recollection um, uh, of a moment that he and his uh, true and in, in real life, uh, dear friend and, and other and fellow Southern Cone writer, Adolfo Bioy Casares, are sitting in his apartment or in a apartment um, in, in sort of the half light, uh, having a meal and get startled by the movement uh, at the end of a hallway of a mirror. And this movement of an image in a mirror sets on a series of speculations um, and, and a search for uh, uh, an entry in an encyclopedia that they uh, then can't, can't find, um, 
which leads the narrator, Borges, to unearth essentially a decades-old conspiracy um, uh, uh, among a, a shadowy group of, of, of writers and intellectuals around the world, um, ultimately to not just create a country, but an entire planet, a world, uh, a way of thinking, a metaphysics. Um, and the, the extraordinary nature of the story is the way that it he uses that world and its relationship with our world, which then in a very eerie way, it starts to invade in, an, in, a, in a postscript that he wrote. Uh, well, he writes it as if it were a postscript. It's still part of the same story. Um, and that's where I get the title from the book, The Rigor of Angels, because it's in that postscript uh, where this his world, the world of the narrator, our world, has been invaded by this alien world that was created, um, uh, um, dreamt up by these uh, by the shadowy group of writers and intellectuals. Um, he says of this of this of this world as it invades ours that that reality, our reality, gave away before or in front of this rigor, this rigor that um, that people discovered in this world. And he says, how could it not give way? Because every time in the history of humanity that we're faced with some kind of a convincing explanation for the ultimate nature of reality, the way that the world is out there, that seems to make sense, that all fits in in a way that explains the inconsistencies of the world, we buy it uh, hook, line, and sinker, and we, um, we drink the Kool-Aid, as it were. And this happens, he says, over and over again in this quote, this beautiful quote that leads to the title of my book, humanity forgets and forgets again that the rigor that you find out there in the world is a rigor of chess masters and not of angels. By which he means, yes, there's rigor in the world, but that rigor is something that we humans bring to the world to organize it. And when we discover the laws of physics, the laws of physics weren't written in some notebook out there. They're, they're part of our ability to understand the world that we bring to nature. And this is what connects Borges in this book to the uh, one of the two other great figures in the book that I'm, 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 I'm studying, which is the uh, inventor of quantum mechanics. Uh, you know, the, in some ways I would argue the most important of a group of people who invented quantum mechanics, and that's uh, Werner Heisenberg, um, who would say over and over again in, in his own philosophizing about physics, about the nature between the nature uh, or the relationship between physics and and reality itself, is that what we have to remember is that when we do science, we're not studying nature itself; we're studying nature as it reveals itself to our uh, instruments of, ob of observation, and that's a fundamental distinction that we tend to forget over and over and over again. Yes, and also Kant, who uh, I learned a tremendous amount, amount uh, from your book, um, which has been helpful for me because I always felt like um, I uh, Kant was like a black hole in my in my uh, knowledge, so to speak. Or you know, I had some exposure to him, but he just never made any sense to me. So uh, that, I, that that would, this was very uh, healing. In that well, I'm I'm not I'm not glad that he didn't make sense, but 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 I am glad that my book in some way helped with that conundrum because yeah, Kant is hard. Kant is hard to read. There's no question about it. Yeah. So let's let's go through a little bit. What's what is an antimony? Um, and what are some examples? And why why was this important to Kant? And why is this a central uh thread in your book? The antimony? So and antinomies appear antinomies appear in the second half of his magnum opus, um, the uh, which he wrote uh, sort of at the beginning of his most uh, productive years, which is the last third of his life, he published the Critique of Pure Reason, and it's, um, as I say in in my book, a doorstopper of a book. It is uh, a massive work. He rewrote it again uh, almost a decade later. What we have today are, are two versions, which are integrated by scholarship into the A and the B uh, version, but together they they form an extraordinary work of, of philosophy that many people say continues to say is the crowning work of of modern philosophy, the philosophical work that all philosophers after Kant in some sense have to deal with, have to respond to. That book is divided into two halves. The first half, which is called the analytic, essentially maps out what Kant refers to as, you know, his his Copernican revolution, which is when he realizes that um, when we study the world, it, it's we really have to accept that there's an aspect about reality, which is not to say that it doesn't doesn't exist, but that's in some ways beyond us. We can't grasp and understand reality as it is in and of itself what he calls das Ding an sich, or the noumenal realm, because we can only access the world through our senses, through what he calls the phenomenal. 
However, unlike the skeptics who, um, in particular David Hume, who pushed him to this, uh, uh, to his realization, to the kind of philosophical response that he comes up with, he's not content to say, and therefore, all we ever have is a projection of a, a, a kind of subjective reality. He wants to save room for science. He wants to save room for objective knowledge. And his Copernican revolution is his realization that we do have access to something like objective truth. It's a kind of communicative objective truth. It's an objective truth that that uh, that emerges from what we can logically determine are the absolute conditions of possibility of our knowing something. And those conditions of possibility are never only individual. They're never only uh, uh, pure impressions upon which one would build up some kind of a, uh, a potentially false ideology, a la David Hume. The second part of the book, which goes to the heart of what you're asking uh, about the antinomies, then I use the four, the four forms of the antinomy in uh, the second part of the book to structure uh, my my book. It's not, it's sort of behind the scenes structuring, but I, I, I let the reader know kind of early on what's going on with that. These are four ways that should you as a philosopher, as a thinker, as a scientist fail to recognize the difference between the phenomenal world and the world in and of itself, should you um, make that fundamental error of thinking that the world as it appears to your senses in space and time is a reflection not of how things appear to your senses and how you in fact organize or interpret the world, but of the world in and of itself, you will inevitably fall into certain kinds of error. And those errors are, well, one of the forms of those errors are the antinomies. There's others as well, but the antinomies are enough uh, for the purposes of this book. And those have four different forms. Um, he, he also divides those, which are the mathematical and the dynamical. But the antinomies are essentially massive contradictions. Um, and so one of the ones that, with which I start the book off is the idea that you can um, decide that the world is or presume that the world is, in, is made of stuff that's infinitely divisible. And that you can come down to some sort of a level of uh, an atom, but you can divide that. And then within that atom, there's a half of ad an atom and you can divide that. And this is an argument that is watertight. You know, you can use mathematics and divide the world infinitely down. On the other hand, one could then respond and say, but what would the world be made of um, then? If, it's, if, there's, if every possible substance is divisible all the way down infinitely, what, you know, how is there any stuff to begin with? And then you would have an atom atomistic response and you would say, therefore, there must be nuggets or chunks of reality that can't be divided any further. And then the response to that then comes around, but, but if you can see it and hold it in your hand and somehow conceptualize it as having extension, then you can imagine dividing it in half. And so you can't get out of this contradiction. Kant says. And the reason you can't get out of that contradiction is precisely because we're taking something in space and time, namely our ability to measure things, to make calculations about those measurements, and we're thinking about the absolute extremes of reality itself. The same thing happens on the massive scale that happens on the minuscule scale. If you start thinking about all of the cosmos as a whole, you're going to run into the problem, an age-old problem, of the edge of the cosmos. So what happens when you think about the cosmos as a whole, well, you think, well, there must be an edge to the cosmos. But if you get to the edge of the cosmos and you stick your hand out of the edge, you're going to run into an antinomy as well. So what's outside of the cosmos in order for you to be able to say that the cosmos exists as a whole? So those are the two mathematical antinomies. The book itself is divided into four sections, each of which in some ways tells a story that's based on that kind of a contradiction that you'll run into if you fail to realize what all of these thinkers are ultimately coming up with, which is the tools that we use to think and conceptualize and understand and, and if you will, even perceive reality in the first place, or are only ever about our knowledge of the ultimate nature of reality and not about the thing in and of itself, reality in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say that the question is, I have a hard time formulating, and maybe that implies it's not a well thought out or, or, or good question. But the the question that I struggle with is, what is the thing in itself? Mm -hmm. So the thing in itself is unknowable, but there's different kinds of unknowability. I mean, right. something right. could be unknowable because we don't have access to it, but it's clearly not what Kant seems to be saying. This, is it unknowable in the sense that it doesn't exist? Or is it unknowable in the sense, right? So you're shaking your head no, 
because no, that no. would be David Hume's That's uh, right. perspective. Yeah, or, or or idealism a la Berkeley that you know that you you essentially do away with the world in and of itself. No, it it needs to be there, but it's only there. The term that Kant uses for it is a, is is a limit concept. It has to um, we have to know that it's there, but also know that it that that knowledge of it runs up against um, an internal limit that we can't we can't surpass because that is what allows us to then make something like an objective real science uh, a science that really takes into account that, that the limits of reason that reason is an internal thing it's something that works for beings who must um uh, uh, uh organize their intuitions of the world spatially and temporally but we can't assume in fact we have to assume that this is not the case that those spatial and temporal um frameworks that spatial and temporal framework that we uh, organize all of our knowledge about the world in corresponds to a kind of infinite space-time stuff that's that's out there in the world and assume that that's what the ultimate nature of reality is which and that's sort of the key point we have tended to do in particular in the high modern age that gave us the scientific revolution in some ways that's the you know that's what newtonian um, space-time is an infinitely extended rigid space-time grid um, that uh, uh, allows stuff to be in it um, and that the stuff that is extended in it follows these rules and it follows these rules because these rules are the actual rules that pertain to stuff that's happening in that infinitely extended space-time grid well one of Heisenberg's points in his constant back and forth with Einstein is, look, I'm not the one to throw out, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, you already did it in 1905 with relativity. You demonstrated in particular with uh, special relativity that uh, Newton's clock, God's clock, that is the background of everything that's happening in, in Newtonian physics and classical physics doesn't exist because what that clock assumes is that there's such a thing as there can be such a thing as two events happening simultaneously, regardless of who's there to observe and report on those uh, those events. What Einstein definitively showed us, and in fact, rewrote the rules of, uh, of physics in order to, to follow on this, was no, it's actually the time of an event has to be ultimately relative to the observer, that the time of the event is something that you assign as a as a as a virtue of a measurement that you make um, uh, uh, as an observer and that is relative to the point of view of the observer and that throws away the whole backdrop of of, of god's clock uh that was ne a necessary presupposition to newtonian space-time yeah to, to make this yeah as, as as sort of specific and concrete as possible we can imagine someone this was myself at one point in time reading about modern physics Mm -hmm. And they're 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 finding it uh, very you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, I don't want to say difficult or inscrutable they're finding it like maddening they're finding it maddening you know mm -hmm. they're being told things that obviously conflict with intuition so the the first example they might encounter uh, in the beginning of a book on modern physics for a popular audience is how you know the speed of light is the same for every observer regardless of your velocity you know regardless right. of how you're traveling you know and that just is so uh, in in. What do you do with that? Yeah. 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 With, with yeah. our lived experience, you know, and it only goes downhill from there, you know, uh, right. after that, it, you know, half spins and um, wave light duality, uh, you know, this idea of, um, you know, a particle being a wave and a, and a particle at the same time. And it, it doesn't, yeah. So what, what advice, um, what, 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 uh, what, what, what wisdom is there in that? What would, what's the Kantian uh, or your perspective on, on how these topics should be approached perhaps you know, from humility or from an understanding of, you know, the distinction between things in themselves versus our phenomenological reality. Absolutely. The problem is that when we react the way that you and I and everyone who's read and, and learned and studied modern physics uh, reacts, we need to sort of turn around and examine the presuppositions that lead us to react that way. So Richard Feynman is often quoted as having said something along the lines of, well, of course you don't understand quantum mechanics. No one understands quantum mechanics. But he also said something very important, which is 
The reason that we react that way to quantum mechanics is that we have these presuppositions about what reality is and must be in and of itself. And quantum mechanics tells us that at the fundamental level, those presuppositions aren't, aren't the case. So the problem isn't with the quantum mechanics itself. The problem is with our assumption about what reality must look like. And, and that assumption is precisely what I was talking about before, this notion of a fluid, smooth space-time that extends in all directions and in which things happen. And when they happen, they happen regardless of the observer. This is a very, you know, uh, uh, commonplace, completely understandable, logical understanding of how the world must be functioning. Unfortunately, at the level that studies that's studied by high energy physics, it's simply not the case. And so the advice that one gets from reading all three of these thinkers, and it's the advice that that really Heisenberg in the field of physics was most assiduous about following is you pay attention to the experiments, you come up with mathematical explanations of the experiments, and you don't try and get sidetracked by visualizing what must be happening. Because when you do that process, the desire to visualize what's happening is importing suppositions that we have about the way the world must exist, which come to us from a classic, uh, a very specific, you know, bipedal body at a certain uh, weight within a certain kind of um, uh, Goldilocks uh, uh, area of, of existence that allows for us to exist. And we impose it upon the extremes of existence, uh, where in some ways, there's no reason for us to believe that it belongs. Does physics need to be beautiful? I don't think it needs to be beautiful, but our drive to understand the world almost inevitably responds to a, a, a drive to make sense. And that drive to make sense is driven by aesthetic, um, uh, aesthetic principles. And some of those aesthetic principles are um, uh, the principles of proportion, that things need to fit in certain ways, um, that when you can have a... Um, a simpler explanation uh, of a massive system um, where you cut down the number of variables in your explanation, that's beautiful um, and that's pleasing in some way. And that's and, and I, I know why you're asking this question because this is something that we get into in uh, the, the latter uh, uh, third and then ultimately fourth of the book as well, which is that Kant also thought that there was a fundamental relationship between our drive to know the world and um, and aesthetic principles. And he, he believed that um, this, he believed that the two were deeply interconnected, um, that we would, when we went out into the world, discover these kind of, what's the word that I'm looking for? This um, lattice work of interconnections leading from the simple to the complex, from the species to the, uh, uh, from, the from the genus out to the species. And that this was not untrue to find this. This was true. But again, the same lesson gets brought back to us. When we attempt to then take that guiding principle of the way that we look for clues in the world, like we're looking for clues in a good mystery novel and trying to piece together uh, a, a solution, that when we do that and we impose them out on the world themselves, we're going to end up making fundamental mistakes about the nature of reality. One of those might be something along the lines of... Um, the world is the way it is by design. That's the only way it could have come come about that way. So Kant has a very early argument against the um, uh, uh, the argument for creation that comes from from design, which came from the uh, from the Middle Ages, from Saint Thomas Aquinas. Well, things are just so amazing the way that they work that it has to be an intelligent creator that uh, that created them that way. But he also, those arguments also lead us in my argument, in my take, away from certain modern versions of, of that kind of assumption, namely the um, anthropic principle. Um, and there is, there's two forms. There's the hard anthropic or the kind of uh, uh, the strong anthropic principle, which is basically design, which is, um, you know, the, the settings that the universe must have been set at in order for us to come up with this extremely um, intricate and complex universe that we live in are they're they're so outlandishly um, uh, unlikely to have occurred by themselves that um, 
that something like God must have tooled them, set them at the very origin. And those who don't accept that or a whole bunch of physicists, physicists who think that that's, you know, that's a kind of fairy tale notion have found a workaround um, that's called the weak anthropic principle. And the weak anthropic principle suggests, well, yeah, okay, um, maybe it wasn't designed this way by some uh, by some all-knowing God, but the still the early settings of the universe, um, the initial settings of the universe are still ridiculously difficult to just come by. You, you can't just throw a dice and uh, a set of dice and expect to come up with these kind of initial settings. Therefore, every possible universe was being created and has been and is being created all the time. And um, because there's a sort of infinite constant creation of different different kinds of universes with different settings, Clearly, um, we're going to end up in that universe that would support our existence and then end up doing science about the universe that would support our existence. Um, those who sort of defend this notion kind of uh, refer to the, the, um, the infinite suit uh, uh, store idea where where if you go into a store and only one suit is hanging on um, uh, uh, on a on a bar in the entire store. But lo and behold, you try to put the suit on and the suit per fits perfectly. You think, wow, what are the chances? Whereas if you walk into a suit uh, store and there's any number of, uh, of suits, uh, you quickly find yours, you put it on and it fits. You're not particularly surprised because there was plenty of choice uh, to, to begin with. The problem with both of those, I suggest, because I'm against both of those models, is that the presumption that um, the universe is incredibly in its current form is very unlikely to have come about presumes something like a being prior prior to the existence of a universe who's out there gambling um but there wasn't and if one assumes that one is in the only universe that ever existed and that's just the way that uh, that it is one begins with an existential assumption the here and now what are you observing and you just don't push those observations back prior to the beginning of space time and thus force on yourself the question of, well, what kind of a being designed us or what would the chances have been that we come about uh, this way, then you're not forcing yourself by making that false presupposition about the way things are or must have been prior to existence, you're not forcing yourself into what are essentially antinomic, to use Kant's terms, uh, 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 problems of thought. Throughout this entire conversation, I've I've like had these questions and um you always answer them as we as we keep going. It's like an amazing thing. Uh it feels like you're reading my mind. Um so just just to sort of uh spell this out a little bit, I, I think everything that I'm asking has already been to some extent covered, but we'll just go a little bit, you know, just spell it out a little bit second time, maybe. Hmm. You're proposing an and at your own, it seems, kind of an antinomy. And antinomy. Hope I got it right this time. Antinomy. Antinomy. Thank you. And and this is sort of in in the tradition of this Kant way of thinking. And it's specifically this uh, duality, this this sort of apparent contradiction between um, a multiverse solution mm -hmm. to the uh, the fine tunedness mm -hmm. of our universe um, on the one hand, and then uh, the other option being uh, intelligent design. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right mm -hmm. so far? And so yeah, I mean, it's these are both sort of versions of some of a way of thinking that is going to drive you into antinomies one way or the other. And why? Because the things that happen and the chance that they happen are things that happen in space and time. They require a before and an after. Uh, if you roll dice, um, you're going to read something that comes up as a result of dice bouncing around on a table. And, and you could have a, a, a six-sided die or you could have, you know, an infinite-sided die or an almost infinite-sided die. You can imagine God as, you know, Einstein famously said, doesn't play dice with the universe. Well, all of this is kind of precisely imagining a scenario in which something is playing dice with the universe and and we're the result we're you know in our current survivable universe the the, the result of that all of this is antinomic thinking because it it, it requires mis mixing up two completely different levels of thought one is science which is studying the here and now uh, and using space, things that happen in space and time and that have causal relationships to do so. Space, time, and causality occurs within space and time, and we use instruments to study it. Um, 
the creation or the emergence of an entire cosmos, including space and time, by definition, can't happen in space and time. But we're applying the same kind of logic when we think about it. And as a result, we fall into an antinomy. Okay. I want to I want to suggest what I think you'll tell me if I'm off base or misreading things. I think is the David Hume perspective. I think mm -hmm. and you can tell me if I'm wrong about that. But it seems to me that the the problem, so to speak, of the anthropic principle that that it's coming to address this this fine tunedness problem, the mm. sense that we live in a very uh, special universe problem. Mm. It's based on trying to explain the existence of a of, of our universe with all these like fine tuned dials. But right. it seems to me that if we're being honest with ourselves, we don't really need to explain the existence of the whole universe. Because mm -hmm. to some extent, I think from the David Hume perspective, you can tell me if I'm wrong about that, all we really need to explain is the existence of a brain, mm -hmm. of one brain, and not mm -hmm. existing over time. A brain mm -hmm. existing for an instantaneous flicker of time, right, for, right, a, right. for less than a picosecond of yeah. just this yeah. moment. Right, right. Just this moment. And so if you're willing to accept as a brute fact that a universe might exist, Mm -hmm. then you know and it's and it's big then it doesn't seem so far-fetched that at some point in the cosmic soup some computing device that mm -hmm. modeled exactly my particular momentary brain uh circuitry emerged out mm -hmm. of the soup and accounts for this moment and then you're done you know because it's always just this moment right know? so that is that is david hume's challenge to kant and kant ultimately what, what I believe that Kant allows us to do is to a occupy a kind of happy middle between those two extremes, the extreme of the anthropic principle, even the extreme of the universe by design, which is really reason got, gone off its rocker uh, in terms of applying everything in the here and now to the, the grand expanse of everything there is. And David Hume's extreme skepticism, as you say, which is really all that you have at these brief, brief flickers or what I call slivers of space time. And everything that you do to extend your knowledge beyond the current flicker of space-time is uh, uh, is essentially un, uh, unjustified. Uh, and and in fact, um, because of that, you can't have any laws of science uh, whatsoever. Kant won't accept the the big extreme, but he also doesn't accept the the Humean version. In fact, he was provoked into critical philosophy and into the creation of what we call uh, the critical philosophy and um, uh, uh, the critique of pure reason precisely by um, by the rigor of Hume's arguments and the need to come up with uh, an adequate response to them. And that adequate response is really what the story, what bringing Borges at the very beginning and his story about Funes and, and Kant and Heisenberg's initial uh, uh, experiments is all about. Because what it is, is it's the exploration of what is the condition of possibility of anything observing anything else at the tiniest sliver of space time. And Kant's answer to Hume is you can't have that individual sliver of space-time on its own by itself because the minute you do that and assume that all you are as an observer is that is is that exact same sliver of space-time with no distance no ability to synthesize between more than one that sliver of space-time disappears right in front of you you don't have that either the condition of possibility of observing anything at a very minimum is this tiny, tiny blurring between at least two moments of space-time that you blur together and have one subject staying the same long enough to kind of experience them both. Without that, you don't have an observation. Without that, you don't have the bare minimum of perception. Without that, you don't have anything that, uh, that, that Hume says that he finds when he goes out in the world. Hume says, look, I, I, I'm, I'm really depressed about this. I kind of use my, uh, my sensory abilities to dive into and, and, and analyze my impressions of the world. And all I ever find is an individual distinct impression of the world. I never find anything like me along there experiencing that. And Kant's answer is, sure you do. The very fact that you can experience and call it an impression requires that you have this minimal blurring, this minimal synthesis between several moments, you know, and we, they didn't have anything like movies moving at 24 frames a second. We have different uh, frames now with, with digital movies and pixels and everything, but the, um, the metaphor still works. Uh, if you think about Hume as saying, look, all you ever have is the current frame. That's it. You don't have the frame beforehand. You don't have the frame afterwards. And you're trying to come up with a whole theory of 
laws of physics, the way all these frames must kind of band, band together. But you, but it, but it's um, you know, it's just hubris on your part. All you have is the individual frame. Kant's answer would be: you have to have more than one frame. In fact, the frames need to be blurred together in order for you to perceive there having been one frame at all in the first place because otherwise all you have is just one massive unity without any distinction without any differentiation without ultimately any synthesis between moments and hence you don't have the barest minimum of, per of perception in the first place i feel like we've plumbed the the depths of metaphysics and the depths of uh you know as deep as the mind can go in this conversation which is uh which is great um you talk about free will in the book is i think kant also does am i, am I right about that very much so very yeah. much kant yeah. also does and so uh that's that's part of this this whole this whole question so yeah what you 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 have some uh critique of uh specifically sam harris among others mm -hmm. um and they're and they're thinking about free will can, we, can, we, can you talk about that we, i think we've developed already at this point a toolkit we've developed the lens good um, good i'm glad handling these questions so so the question of free will is one of is is really one of Kant's antinomies as well it's one of the two dynamical uh antinomies and the idea there Kant fully accepts that um that that uh, human beings uh who are making choices are doing so in a mechanistically determined world um they're doing so as collections of atoms responding to uh the prior states of previous collections of atoms to put it in a very in a very modern framework he wouldn't use that but but he he does work about he does talk about uh mechanistic chains so he has absolutely no problem with that he he in fact he says it's an error of thought to think that um uh, uh uh or to use as any kind of an explanatory uh device the idea of some sort of a ghost in the machine to quote the police in there Kant says not only um is uh is it an error uh um to interpose into your science as an explanatory device something like a soul um, it's also not going to help your situation. You're still going to have the same issues of, well, is the soul free? Uh, uh, what's causing the soul to make decisions? These sorts of things. So none of that, none of that is helpful. At the same time, what Kant says is the other side of the equation is also wrong because if you presume that uh, uh, the 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 fact that human beings are um, uh, uh, are physical beings working in the physical uh, world and responding in every way to the laws of physics and causality in particular, that this means or has anything to say about the free choice of, of, of an individual, you're again making the same kind of mistake that you're making with, uh, with your science when you're taking uh, things that happen in space and time and projecting them out and sort of in glo uh, globalizing or in, or in uh, all encompassing, uh, 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 applying them to something that, th that they shouldn't be applied to. These are different questions. You can't answer questions about free will and responsibility using mechanistic uh, uh, accounts of, of human nature, and you shouldn't, um, and because you're mixing up genres. Ultimately, uh, questions about free will are perfectly compatible with a universe that understands everything as, as responding to the laws of physics. And um, what I try to do to explain this is to go back in time to, um, to a philosopher um, named Boethius. And Boethius was stuck in a prison. He was going to be um, uh, assassinated. He was going to be actually um, executed on uh, a trumped-up charge of, of treason. And Boethius knew that he was going to die, and he was—he uh, used the time in his prison cell to write an extraordinary and extremely influential book uh, called *The Consolation of Philosophy*. And in this book, Boethius imagines a series of conversations with this muse that he calls philosophy. And one of the—not the, one of really the primary issue that that um, Boethius is wrestling with is the the idea that if God knows everything about everything that we're going to do from the beginning of time to the end of time, how is that compatible with free will, with us making decisions and ultimately because he's sitting in 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 a dungeon being getting ready to be executed for a purported crime, what does it say about our responsibility for things that we have done in life? According to the Neoplatonics, according to Augustine, according to the Church Fathers, and ultimately uh, 
you know, that that gets written into Catholicism in particular, both are true. God is both omniscient and omnipotent, um, knows every move that you and I will make for the rest of our lives, and at the same time, we have choices to make, and we are responsible for those choices. How could both of those be true? Boethius' answer is exactly the same as Kant's, uh, you know, a thousand years later or more. The answer is that by assuming a certain kind of knowledge, namely knowledge of things happening in space and time, and imposing it on God, we're actually mixing genres again. We're assuming that God knows the world in a space-time kind of way, a kind of human way. But if there is God, Boethius says, his knowledge isn't going to be anything like that. Uh, that's the way we know the world. Uh, a godlike knowledge would necessarily, at the very least, be extra-temporal, extra-spatial. It would encompass absolutely everything. Time wouldn't happen to God. It's not something that, that, that God is experiencing. God is the Alpha and the Omega. God is the beginning and the end of time. As, as Augustine, who's influential there, said, uh, when people would ask him what was God doing before he created the universe, uh, Augustine said he was, you know, busy making up tortures for those in, in hell for those who would uh, ask such stupid questions. But then he said less facetiously, um, no, uh, the there's no uh, there's no sense to the question whatsoever because the universe wasn't made in time. Time was made with creation. The creation of space and time includes time itself. Hence, anything that is that we consider to be the source of everything, like God, encompasses everything. And that means that you, since God is atemporal, everything happens all at once, if you want to think about it that way. Um, every decision that, uh, uh, that you're making, you can still make in the eternal present tense of, the, uh, of, 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 of God's mind, and it's still free, and there's absolutely nothing incompatible with that. Now, if that's the case, and this would be the Kantian and then, and then ultimately my perspective on it, if the ultimate knowledge of everything in a mechanistic universe happening from beginning to end, right, if you can have that straw man of God, God's knowledge, and still find a way of saying, look, free choice is completely compatible. There's absolutely no problem with saying, look, we're mechanistically determined. And part of our mechanistic determination, part of our groups of atoms uh, doing things in our mind is that those groups of atoms doing things in our brains make decisions. And those decisions can uh, uh, have or exist on a wide spectrum of freedom and coercion, right? I can have a gun pointed to my head and I make a decision to do what the, the person's saying or not. Um, but I still have plenty of moments in my life when I make decisions. And as a human being making those decisions, I should be held responsible for the decisions and the outcomes that I make. So I'll just, I'll just, I'll just add on to this. Uh, it reminds me of a very beautiful result from thermodynamics, which uh, mm -hmm. I found very inspiring in my college physics days about uh, this thought experiment of, of Maxwell's demon. We have this understanding that entropy always increases, that disorder is always increasing. But Maxwell said, what if you had a demon in the mm -hmm. box? who mm -hmm. can separate a diffuse gas all to one side of the box, thereby violating the second law of thermodynamics. And the way he does it is just by opening a door whenever a uh, particle comes by and then closing it once the particle is in that half of the box. And systematically, this Maxwell's demon can do it. And um, again, it, this is an analogy. It's not meant to be a literal uh, right, application right. of what you're describing, but it's this like outsider perspective who's using the force of this knowledge of the whole system to violate the laws of physics. And, and the resolution, so to speak, uh, the way in which you know, science has incorporated this thought experiment is to say that brains cost entropy, that mm -hmm. it costs energy to store right. information, that Maxwell's right. demon is increasing the ultimate entropy of the system because his brain is registering the position of those particles in the box as he's running his experiment. Um, so not, yeah. not that should be taken so literally, but more as an analogy. Uh, I think the sort of this, these these tensions between the insider versus outsider perspectives. Right, and remember, you know, the um, the second law of thermodynamics is that entropy in a closed system tends to um, uh, increase over time. But it says nothing about, and especially if the closed system is as large as the universe as a whole, it says nothing about um, localities, right? So, in fact, you have uh, radically uh, intense decreases of entropy happening all the time. Uh, and yes, so in that theory, something along the lines of like human intelligence would be a, a, a pretty significant decrease in entropy mm -hmm. for the time being until we all scatter into the, into the winds of the future. Yeah, I'm cognizant of our time here, but I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity. If you could just sort of help me understand a little bit um, why was the ethics, Kant's morality, important 
to Kant's project. Um, right, right. In the book, you touch on this a little bit. It's not. I don't think it's core to the book. Yeah. You could tell me if it is or isn't. Um, but yeah, how, how does his how does his morality fit into this conversation? So um, for the very same reason that Kant um, uh, understood us as 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 being beings in space and time who make decisions and are responsible for those decisions. Um, it was something essential about, there is something essential about um, uh, making decisions and being responsible for them to being human. Mm -hmm. So humans, unlike God, uh, well, that's one of the sections of the book is called not being God, right? So that's at the core of everything. We have this tendency to think that the expansion of human intellect to its ultimate degree would be knowing the world in a godlike way. Knowing the world in a godlike way would also include doing things like or or knowing things like the right way to act at every moment in time. But being human, what's part of what's essential about being human is that what we're given is our existence. Uh, our existence is in space and time. Um, and now I'm using kind of non-Kantian language, but I believe it, it ultimately comes from uh, from a Kantian understanding. We're thrown in the world. We're thrown into our existence and we're faced with choices. This is absolutely an ineradicable part of our existence. And any attempt that we make to sort of explain it away and say, oh, well, we're all just um, uh, 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 collections of atoms that are sort of pushed along by the flow, uh, the, the causal flow of space time. And hence, therefore, we don't have any, uh, uh, um, any, any ultimate free will in all of this. These are false morally to the same extent and for the same reasons that they're false scientifically. In other words, they presume a kind of knowledge about what a human is and insert that knowledge into the realm of ethics or into the realm of deciding what's beautiful. In other words, the same errors that are leading us to make mistakes in science uh, about by importing kind of models of what we call the space, infinitely extended space-time stuff. It's the same kind of error that makes us forget fundamental things about human beings, like the fact that we are responsible agents who need to take responsibility for our actions. So ultimately, um, Kant, of course, is a, a full third of his philosophy, and in some ways, uh, a lot of what you know most of us who've read a little bit of Kant know about his philosophy today, because in some ways it's a little simpler to get your uh, uh, wrap your head around, is the Kantian ethics. And the Kantian ethics, right? There's a whole series of ethical uh, programs that are uh, uh, called consequentialist, which which um, uh, uh, essentially presume that what you decide on needs to be based on your calculation of the results. Um, Kant's ethics are almost on their own stand up against all of those, and they're called deontological. Deontological ethics are ethics based on intention, that what matters is choice, what matters is will, as he says at the very beginning um, uh, of, of the uh, groundwork for the metaphys me metaphysics of morals, Right. The only thing that can be truly called good in the world is a goodwill. Um, everything else, you know, you can kind of in some sort of say, say, oh, that's good for something else. Um, that's good in order to do this, that or the other. But what you can truly call morally good is the will to do the right thing. And so what Kant does in his ethical philosophy is try to be consistent with his uh, uh, his epistemology, with his philosophy that lay the groundwork for science, which is to say, well, what is what would consistently be the way, the right way for a being who has to take responsibility for his or her actions to make those choices. Um, and that being uh, would have to act in such a way as to be responsible to its own freedom in the world. And the way that he does that, the way that he works that out is he says, well, you know, we are beings in a physical world. We are um, tempted by our appetites. We are uh, hungry. We desire. We um, we look out for our best interests. And all of these, whenever we follow those impulses, um, to a greater or lesser extent, we're acting like a thing in the world that's being pushed along like a series of atoms. But there's one realm or one way in which we don't. And it's universal. He says, I see it in all humans around me. And that is when we're tempted to do things against our own interests because we believe that they're in the interest of the greater good uh, of the universal. And so when when he, he takes that 
fact, uh, and he derives from it a principle that he calls the um, the categorical imperative. There are other sorts of imperatives, hypothetical. This is what you ought to do in order to get something else. But he says at the basis of all of these, there's something that's a categorical imperative. It's always what you should do. And that always what, what you should always do, whenever you have a moral choice in front of you, you need to see whether you're doing it for your own interests or whether anyone under those circumstances acting the same way would do the same thing. Because when you do that, you're, circle, you're, you're running the equation through all of humanity. Now, granted, you're doing so from a limited perspective. You're not guaranteed to get it right. There's no guarantee that you're going to be acting in an ethical way. But it does show that you are acting in a way that at least is attempting to maximize your freedom as an autonomous individual. You're trying to self-legislate. And that is the, the core of the ethics. And that's why the ethics flows from his own uh, understanding of, of what a human is in the world. That's helpful. Um, I, I fear that in this conversation, I didn't do justice to the scope of the book. Um, another thread I would have loved if we had time to pick up on is uh, Oppenheimer, which is, is someone that is in the, in the public mind space right now. Um, and and the morality and and the and the politics and the questions around the development of nuclear weapons, um, which is in the book. <laughs> you know, it's something that you you explore. Um, it's true. I mean, look, it's it's each conversation I have uh, on the book is is is, and I think that's rich, and I enjoy that so much. It's sort of driven in a particular direction. And you and I ended up spending most of our time talking about, um, you know, a little bit about uh, about uh, Heisenberg, more about Kant in the end, which I appreciated because you said, you know, that 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 Kant was difficult and this was helping you think through some problems with Kant. So I really like that. And much less about Borges. Um, but you're absolutely right that all of these problems, what I tried, the, the book opens up on all of these problems. It, it opens them up and explores them and follows these thinkers in different uh, moments of their life paths down these problems, down these thorny issues and, and tries to relate them always back to that fundamental question, which is how is it that three thinkers from three vastly different walks of life who didn't know each other converged upon something like a very similar understanding of the relationship between the human knowing uh, being and the ultimate nature of reality. And yes, um, and, and in one of the later chapters, we absolutely get into the aftermath of the dropping of the atomic bomb on, on Hiroshima and the relationship, the very thorny relationship between Oppenheimer and, uh, and, and Heisenberg, which I did go and see Christopher Nolan's film recently and found it very interesting that there was that, um, that, that moment of, of meeting that was, to, that was depicted early on. Yeah, yeah. These are great moments of drama, of human drama, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. um, uh, 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 the the play is it by Michael Michael Fain, Frain. Um, uh, I also refer to it in the book. I uh, called Copenhagen about yeah. the relationship between Niels Bohr and uh, and and Heisenberg when um, when Heisenberg goes back on two different occasions to to see him and what happened during that conversation. Fascinating, great, great play. Um, the, so, so this has been the grist of great writers thinking about for a long time. What I tried to bring in was a perspective that then combined some of these stories into a larger story about three very different people on a kind of very similar path of discovery. The last question, if you have time or interest and, and address it all, what advice would you have to me or anyone in the audience working on a book? What are the mistakes, the pitfalls? that mm. potential authors fall into when working on these sort of uh, ambitious writing projects. Wow. Are you, are you working on a book right now? Not, not actively, no, but it's, it's, it's a dream. It's a dream in, in over the course of a life. <laughs> Patience. Um, everyone will tell you this, but dedication to the actual craft of writing. Um, so you, and that craft involves uh, a certain amount of discipline, a certain amount of, I'm going to set myself goals and I'm going to meet those goals as messy as they may be the first time around. Um, willingness to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. These are all truisms, but honestly, they're truisms because they're true. It's uh, uh, it is the case. The hardest thing that I did as a writer was to develop and to make the decision to develop my writing from being an already successful academic writer uh, who some at a certain point in my career, you know, at this point, probably half a career ago, decided I'm not satisfied with writing highly technical works of at that time, kind of literary history and literary theory that are only going to be read by a handful of people. And then, you know, I'll see them at conferences occasionally and we'll talk about these things, um, which is not to say that that's a, you know, a bad way to be either. Uh, but 
in order to have larger conversations to impact people's lives, I wanted to write books that um, that were bigger than that in some ways that sold more. And the number one mistake that my fellow academics often make when thinking about that is um, is to believe that writing books like that means that you have to dumb them down or you know that writing for a general audience is somehow simplifying or uh, vulgarizing in some some languages we use that. Uh, <laughs> This is simply not the case. In fact, what my writing and my, my thinking has had to do is become that much sharper, that much more um, uh, clear. I'd, I've had to become clear to myself. I've had to avoid some of the crutches that academics often uh, use, which is just I'm going to throw in a way of saying things that is useful to the field and that for the time being is going to allow me not to have to think about this problem. You can't do that with a general readership. You've got to actually speak and tell stories in a in a language that everyone's going to understand. And um, that's immensely edifying for people who spend a lot of their time thinking about complicated stuff. Well, I'm incredibly grateful that you made that decision to uh, expand your audience. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for the time that you've given me today. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Eggington. This it's has been my really pleasure, Nami. It was really, really great to talk to you.